I am Pastor Jake. If you're uh, new here, I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and I would love to meet you on your way out. I'll be at the uh, doors afterwards, uh, hopefully, and uh, you can uh, introduce yourself as you're leaving or look for me. I'd uh, love, to, love to meet you. But we are about halfway through um, our series called Game Changers, where we're looking at uh, eight different men and women in the Old Testament that God has used in very impactful ways to, to um, change the game uh, in their uh, time, in their era, in their nation, in their community. And so we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. And uh, so far, we've looked at Deborah's game-changing wisdom. Uh, we looked at Samuel's game-changing righteousness. And then last week, uh, we looked at David's game-changing repentance. And if you've missed any of those, make sure you grab them uh, off of iTunes, grab the podcast off of iTunes, or listen online so you can catch up, because I feel like uh, the Lord has been blessing this series. But before we get into today's uh, game-changer, I thought I'd just tell you a story. I- I've never told this story um, in a sermon before, and it's a part of my life that I don't uh, talk about uh, very much. But um, my wife Erin and I uh, were missionaries in China for four years um, before being lead pastors in Wisconsin and then coming here. And uh, we took our three-month-old daughter, Kennedy, uh, with us to China. And uh, God did some amazing things in China. We saw awesome things happen. We loved it there. Uh, we, we really would have stayed there for decades had it been uh, God's plan, uh, but it wasn't his plan. But we just, we loved it. We had a great time and saw God do some amazing things. But it wasn't, it wasn't all good. Uh, we went through probably uh, the biggest difficulty um, in our married life so far uh, since, uh, while we were in, in China. Uh, it's a trial that many of you have gone through. Um, also, and we we decided to start um, trying for our second our second baby, our second kid, and uh, we were ex- excited. Uh, the The Lord um, allowed Aaron to get pregnant very quickly, and we were overjoyed. And uh, we, I, if you know me, you know I just love my kids, so we were pumped about that second kid. And uh, we went to one of our doctor's appointments during the first trimester. It's Chinese hospital. Chinese doctor, everything was in Mandarin, and uh, we were having an ultrasound done, and I'll never forget uh, what the doctor said. He looked kind of tense as he's looking at the screen, and he said in Mandarin, which means prepare your hearts, and he couldn't find the heartbeat of our baby, and so in the first trimester, our baby died, passed away. It was a tough time for us. Here we are serving the Lord, right? I mean, we had given up everything and gone to China to live there, learn the language and the culture, to serve the people of China. It's like, miscarriage? Really, God? This is what you're giving us? And on top of that, we had no family in the area, obviously. We lived in a foreign country, away from medical care that we trusted, all of that. It was a valley in our lives. We were very discouraged have you ever been discouraged before? Ever had a time in your life when things were going pretty well and you feel like you're on track and you felt like you were kind of doing the work and, and putting in the time in your relationship with God and you were glow, growing closer uh, to him? 
only to have something bad happen that brings you some pretty, pretty serious discouragement. Maybe you do this critical comparison thing. You ever do that? Like sometimes I get pretty discouraged when I compare myself to other people. They're farther along than I am. He's farther along. He's got this, all this money saved up. He's got this great house and this great whatever. He's farther along than me. You might be a lady and you're comparing maybe not to some other lady but to her kids, right? Her kids versus your kids. Her kids go to school in those perfect matching outfits. Have you ever seen those? They make me sick, all right? <laughs> they make me sick. If I'm in charge of getting my kids to school, I'm just happy if they're dressed, all right, I'm like, did they have pants on? Uh, yeah, okay, they did, yeah. I'm good, I'm good. Throwing Cheerios out of my car. Don't forget breakfast, right? But they've got this perfect life and you're comparing yourself. Then there's also just this whole small beginnings thing. I'm, I'm gonna go on a diet, I'm gonna get in shape. And so for a month, you eat nothing but kale and almonds, and you lose two pounds. And you're like, what in the world? I've been trying so hard. I've been working out. I've been doing this thing. At this rate, I'll reach my weight goal in 163 years. Right? You get discouraged. Finally, maybe you get the help that your marriage needs. You go to a pastor or a counselor for a month. And you look at your relationship. And not much has changed. And you're going doesn't seem like it's worth it. The difference is pretty small. I'm working hard, but I'm just not making it happen. You feel like you're always taking two steps forward and three steps back. Maybe it's spiritual for you. You think, I've been a Christian for a long time. I should kind of be good at not saying bad words now, right? I, should, I shouldn't be saying bad words. I, I've been a Christian for a long time, but Man, here we are going to church on Sunday morning. We're cussing the whole way there because we're late. We're like, man, we are nailing this Jesus follower thing, right? Cussing at the kids. Let's go praise God. You'd think by this time I'd be farther along in my spiritual journey, and so you're discouraged. I'm not where I thought I'd be. Or this bad thing happened to me, and I just can't get past it. I want to talk to you about a game changer today who totally has been there, the prophet Elijah. If you have your Bible, you can grab it, head over to 1 Kings 17. Elijah is a, is a very well-known prophet. If you haven't read about him, you need to. He shows up in 1 and 2 Kings and also in 2 Chronicles 21. But not just that. John the Baptist uh, talks about Elijah in Matthew 3. Je uh, Jesus mentions him in Matthew 11. But crazier than all that, Elijah is one of two Old Testament people who actually makes an appearance in the New Testament. It's called uh, Jesus' Transfiguration. And you can read about that this week 
speak in Mark 9 and Luke 9. Check that out later. But Elijah was a powerful prophet who did some amazing miracles. I mean, he called down fire from heaven multiple times. He had ravens bringing him food to eat. He spoke a drought into existence and then called down the rain three years later. God used him to resurrect a little boy from the dead. He prophesied in some very specific ways uh, that came true just as he said uh, they would. He was a game changer at a time when very few people were following the Lord at all. Let me try to set the context for you. After King David died, talked about King David last week in our Game Changers series. After King David died, his son Solomon uh, reigned in his place. And the, the kingdom of Israel saw uh, unprecedented peace during Solomon's reign. Uh, there was just riches flowing in and there was this peace. And Solomon had this wisdom uh, that was definitely from the Lord. But Solomon uh, slipped up a little bit and he allowed some false gods to be worshipped. And he had some pretty questionable morals at times. And so after Solomon died, uh, there was this period of history uh, where the kingdom of Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. And so basically 10 of 12 tribes of Israel seceded from the nation, okay, but basically based on uh, or because of a Solomon's son, Jeroboam's hike in taxes. So he raised taxes and 10 out of 12 tribes left. And so it would be like 40-something states leaving from the United States, right? I mean, that's huge. It creates this divided kingdom, two kingdoms. And so kingdom of Israel uh, was to the north, and that was the 10 tribes. And then the kingdom of Judah was to the south, and that was uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so the kingdom of Judah, as we read First and Second Kings, it has it, the occasional good king in there. The occasional king who turns the hearts of the people back to the Lord and there's repentance and there's all of that. But the kingdom of Israel to the north had no good kings. First and second kings, over and over you see this phrase, so-and-so became king of Israel and did evil in the sight of the Lord just like his fathers before him. And that happens over and over and over. And in the end, the northern kingdom of Israel only lasts about 200 years because of this, while the southern kingdom of Judah lasts almost double that. So in the New Testament... When Jesus is ministering and he's talking about Israel, at that time, this is, that's many years later, and he's talking about the kingdom of Judah. When he says Israel, he's talking about the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom by that time had turned into Samaria. So when he talks about Samaria, he's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. Everybody with me so far? Did the maps help you a little bit? Okay. So divided kingdom. Divided kingdom. So when Elijah shows up on the scene, it's about 870 B.C. Sixty years has passed since the secession of Israel. About 150 years has passed since King David died. It's a time of division, conflict, wickedness. Elijah is in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, where there are no good kings. And evil is at an all-time high because a guy named Ahab is in power, and he's leading the people to worship false gods like no one has ever done before because of his wife, a peach of a woman named Jezebel. 
So there's a reason you didn't name your kid Jezebel. If you named your kid Jezebel, I'm sorry I just offended you. All right, hopefully that sets you up for Elijah's story. That brings us to 1 Kings 17. I'll summarize some things, and then I'll read a passage in chapter 18. So here we go. Ahab is a bad dude. Okay, everybody say Ahab's a bad dude. And Jezebel is even worse, and she's killed a bunch of prophets by this time. So God tells Elijah to march up to King Ahab and Jezebel and to deliver a harsh word. He's supposed to go to him and say, there's going to be a drought in the land, no rain and no dew for three years straight or for years until I, Elijah, say that it's over. And so he goes and he, he calls out the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel and he uh, pronounces this drought on the land. So people are going to die during this drought. There's not going to be any food. It's going to be really bad. Things are not going to go well for Ahab and Jezebel. So you can imagine that, that the prophet Elijah is not the most popular guy in Israel at this time, right? Because he's the one who holds the keys. He's the one who can stop the drought. And so they try to kill him. And so he flees and he goes into the wilderness, Elijah does. And God leads him to a creek uh, where there's some water for a time. And he's miraculously fed by ravens bringing him food. All this is happening. The creek dries up. So God sends him to a widow with one son. They're just about to eat their last meal and die, the widow says. But she gives Elijah that last bit of food and last bit of oil. She gives out of her lack, not out of her abundance. Many of us give only out of our abundance. This woman gave out of her lack, and God blessed her for it. Miraculously, her oil and her flour just didn't run dry. God kept filling it up. And so Elijah almost dies, but he's saved by this widow. After that, the son of the widow does die of sickness after all that, uh, but the prophet Elijah prays for him, and he's resurrected from the dead. All this happens as the land is dealing with this three-year drought that Elijah has called into place. And so Elijah goes back to King Ahab to confront him. Look at verse 17 of 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, they want to kill Elijah, but he goes to them in boldness and he calls them out. This is because of your wickedness and no other reason. Then he calls for the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, the two gods that Ahab and Jezebel were serving, to come together and all of Israel to come together. And then look at verse 21. I love what Elijah says to the people. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So Elijah's kind of a sarcastic guy. Um, you'll see that here in a minute when we look at another text. But he goes, how long are you going to limp back and forth between these two gods like whining kids? 
He's like, make up your mind. If Baal is God's servant, if, if the God of Israel, Jehovah is God, then serve him. And then Elijah basically sets up this showdown between the prophets of Baal and himself. And so he sets up two altars. He puts a bull on each altar and he goes, let's see whose God is real. We'll both pray and we'll ask our God to send fire from heaven and consume the offering. The God who does that is the real God, the only God, the true God. So imagine this scene. All these people are gathered All this is happening, 450 prophets of Baal, and these two altars are set up. And so 450 prophets of Baal are gathered around this altar to their God. Everybody is over here. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, they're on the side of Baal. And they're, maybe they're dressed in robes or whatever. Just imagine this scene. And they begin to cry out to their God, Baal, Baal, please consume the offering. I, Elijah is over on the other side all alone. Nobody wants to be with Elijah He's not popular at this time, right? He's the drought guy. And so they're sitting there crying out to God for hours or to Baal for hours. And the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves as is their custom. And so their blood is flowing into the altar as they try to prove their devotion to their God Baal. Picture that, the blood of 450 prophets of Baal flowing on the altar as they pray and they pray and they pray and nothing happens. Nothing is happening. And you can imagine it's very intense. And these prophets think they got to get this done or Jezebel's going to kill them, right? They got to make sure that they win this showdown. They're going to die if they don't. And I love what... Elijah says in the middle of this in verse 27 it's this intense scene and Elijah is over on his side and it says in verse 27 at noon Elijah mocked them see this is why it's okay to mock people sometimes it's in the bible at noon Elijah mocked them he's over by his area and he mocked them and he said cry aloud for he's a god Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And so, man, Elijah's my favorite prophet. How could he not be, right? How could he not be? And so he's calling out to the prophets of Baal going, yell louder. He's probably just on a potty break. He might be out of town. Maybe he's sleeping. Yell louder. The prophets of Baal get into a frenzy. They're cutting themselves. There's blood everywhere. Look at verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Nothing happened because they were counting on a God made of wood and stone that can't answer you. This seems like a good place to pause in the story of Elijah and just ask you, 
what are you counting on in your life? What, what are you counting on? It may not be Baal or another statue, but I want you to hear this and to understand that if you're putting your hope in money, it's the same thing. In the end, when it counts, money will not answer you. It's paper. It's numbers on a screen. It won't pay attention to you. If it's success in your job, when it matters, there will be no voice. Your career will not answer you. If it's your stuff, your houses, your cars, your gadgets, that stuff is blind and it is mute. When it counts, it will not answer you. All of that stuff makes really cruddy gods that cannot save you. Even your family or your spouse, they cannot answer you or save you when it matters most. So what are you counting on? What are you putting your hope in? These prophets of Baal were counting on Baal. They were sold out. They were sure that they were in the right camp. Everybody else was. How could they not be, right? I mean, only one crazy guy who's keeping it from raining is over on the other side. Everybody's on their side. They must be right. They were sure that they had the right God, the right thing that they were putting their hope in, that they were counting on. They were deceived. Are you deceived? What are you counting on? There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let's keep going. Now it's Elijah's turn. So he prepares the altar of the Lord and puts a sacrifice on it. And so just to make sure that his point is clear, Elijah gathers the people around his altar and he says, why don't you go grab a whole bunch of water and pour it on the altar and on the sacrifice? And they pour it on. He goes, do it again. They pour it on. And he goes, do it again. And they pour it on again. And there's a trench around the altar full of water. Everything on the altar is soaked And Elijah prays. No begging, no cutting, just just prayer. Look at what he says in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. That's all he says. And look at what happens next in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So it's not close, is it? It's not like the prophets of Baal got some fire to come down and Elijah got more fire to come down and it's like a photo finish. Like, are they? It's not like that, is it? 
The fire of the Lord comes down and it consumes, it consumes the, the offering, it consumes the dust, it licks up the water, it takes out the altar, everything in and around the altar is totally consumed by the fire and the power of God. Isn't that crazy? It's not even close. There is no power over here, absolutely no power found in the pursuit of Baal or in the pursuit of your idols or your false gods, your stuff, your own abilities, none. And to contrast that, there is unbelievable power in the one true God. I mean, this is, this is God screaming this truth. Screaming that there's impotence on this side. That there is no hope on this side. That there is no, no benefit, no moving forward, no power on this side. And yet unbelievable, unmatched power in the hands of the God of the universe. There is no doubt, no question. And so everybody just falls on their face and begins to worship the God of Israel. And then Elijah calls for the prophets of Baal to be killed. All of them. And he turns to Ahab and he basically says, you better hurry home. Storms are coming. Mic drop, right? No mic, but you know what I mean. He's like, the rain's coming. You better go home. Calls the drought off, calls the rain in. Wow. I mean, talk about a high point, right? In the, in the life of Elijah. Talk about a mountaintop experience. Elijah takes on the king and the queen and all the prophets of Baal. He calls down fire from heaven. Then he calls down the rain. God gives him the victory over his enemies in this huge, visible way. From there, he's got to be good to go, Right? I can't imagine he'd have any problems after that, can you? Mountaintops from here on out for Elijah. Have you ever been on a mountaintop in your life? Have you ever seen God do something amazing in your life that just elevated you to the heights? You were on cloud nine. You thought you'd never have a problem again. I've been there. Maybe it was when you got married or got your dream job or had kids or grandkids or maybe it was when someone you loved or, or you yourself beat a terminal illness. Maybe it was when you gave your life over to Christ and completely and then you felt the peace that comes from doing that. Maybe it was a spiritual victory the Lord gave you over depression or anxiety or doubt or insecurity or pride. But you were on this mountaintop. Ever been there? If you have, you know that you don't usually stay there forever, right? It's just not the way it works. You just don't usually stay there forever. No, I was on a mountaintop just before we lost our baby as missionaries in China. Look at what happens next in Elijah's life. Right after this huge, encouraging victory, Jezebel gets mad and she calls for the head of Elijah, Elijah's death. It's chapter 19, starting in verse 3. 
When he was, then he was afraid. Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So he runs, right? He just had this great victory over 450 prophets of Baal. God has shown himself able to handle any problem Elijah has. But when Jezebel comes after him, he runs scared. He goes into the wilderness and literally says, God, just kill me now. He's so discouraged he wants to die. Talk about ups and downs, right? Jezebel has this murderous rage after Mount Carmel, mountaintops and valleys. Ever been there? Ever been discouraged? Maybe you're there right now. Yeah. Elijah asked for God to kill him. So God sends an angel, but not to kill him, to give him some food, to wake him up, to tell him where he's supposed to go. So Elijah ends up in a cave, hiding from Jezebel. He's down, he's depressed, and he doesn't want to go on. And so he starts complaining to God. The guy, the guy who just boldly called out Jezebel and Ahab, called out the prophets of Baal, called fire from heaven, uses that same mouth to complain to God. He goes, God, I've been serving you, and it's not going well. Have you ever said that to God? God, I'm serving you. What's going on? I'm serving you, and it's not going well. And, if, and I'm all that's left, God. I feel so alone, Elijah says. Look at verse 11. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces, in pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So a wind comes and breaks the rocks and tears the mountain apart. Then an earthquake, the ground begins to shake, but God's not in that. Then a raging fire, not a lot of vegetation high up in the mountains, right? So the rocks are burning. But God's not in the fire. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the strong wind. He doesn't answer Elijah in any of these. Look at the rest of verse 13. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Listen, beloved. Sometimes we're looking for a big sign when God is whispering to us. Sometimes, maybe a lot of times, God speaks in the quiet, in the stillness, his voice is heard. Think about it. What takes more faith? For you to believe some big earthquake-type sign from heaven or for you to listen intently for the whisper of the Holy Spirit? Some of us need to stop looking 
for big flashy words from God and instead be quiet before him. He's probably whispering, waiting for us to have the faith to listen. In the next verses, Elijah goes out to hear the whisper. God asks him what he's doing, hiding in a cave. Elijah repeats what he said earlier. God, I've been serving you, and it ain't going well. I'm all that's left. I feel so alone. The the Lord answers in verse 15. The Lord said to him, he's just complained. He's just said, I'm alone. He's just said, things aren't going well. Here's what the, the Lord says. Go. You ever heard that from the Lord? You're complaining. You want him to go. It's okay, buddy. It's okay. Come on in. It's okay. But you complain. You let all this out. Why, God? Go. He just says, go. The Lord said, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, verse 18, I will leave seven 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Basically, God says, suck it up, buttercup. I got stuff I need you to do. I got plans you don't even know about. I need you to do your job, Elijah. Anoint the next king of Israel. Anoint the next king of Syria. Don't worry. I got it figured out. I know who that's going to be. I just want you to go anoint him. Elijah, I need you to go anoint your successor, Elisha. Don't worry. I got that figured out. I'll tell you where he is. Go anoint him too. And all your enemies you're talking about, Elijah, I'll take care of them. Two. Oh, and as far as you being all alone, I got 7,000 that have yet to bow the knee to Baal that you don't even know about. God's going, what? I haven't changed. I haven't left you. I'm still here working, always working. You can still depend on me just like you did at Mount Carmel and at the brook when the ravens were feeding you and when the widow had barely enough to give you and I made that work miraculously and the son, the widow's son who was resurrected from the dead. When you ask me to end the drought, you can still count on me. I have not changed. You see, when you're discouraged, it's you that's changed, not God. God is there with you on the mountaintops and in the valleys. And it's not about if valleys come, it's a guarantee. They will come, right? They will come. It's better to have the right expectations and deal with them than to be like surprised by tough times. I'm always surprised when you're surprised by tough times. When you're coming to me like, I didn't know this would happen. I'm like, what? Like, what world were you living in before this? Of course this happens. We have valleys. Valleys will come in life. Can, can, I, be, can I be real with you for a second? So far I've been fake. Can I be real? 
I just want to be real. It's a bit risky, uh, but uh, if I'm not real about some things, it's, it just doesn't matter. None of this matters. And, and listen, I, before I get real with you, I, I don't want letters, okay? I don't want, I don't want, we love you, pastor. I don't want that, all right? <laughs> I don't want that. I'm not, I'm not trying to get anything from you. I'm just telling you because I want to be real. Like many of you, um, I live with constant discouragement in my life for a bunch of reasons, same as you. But the biggest one I feel, as far as discouragement goes, is that I always think I could have done better, that I could have done better for God, that I could have preached better, led better, counseled better, that I could have done this better. Like after this message today, all day, it'll be hard for me to get my mind past today's message thinking, I wish I'd have said that differently. I wish I would have not let that come out that way. That's not what I meant. I wish I would have done this a little different. Because like I've told you before, I feel this sense of divine responsibility for you. For unpacking the word of God to you. For helping you see that God what God wants you to see, for helping you have a faith that moves, that does something. I feel this divine responsibility to shepherd the flock that God has given me to shepherd. And sometimes it's easy to focus on the negative, like the little tiny bit of negative, in a sea of positive. Have you ever done that in your life where you're like, what is wrong with me? It's like this little tiny thing, but I just can't get my mind off of it. It's this little tiny negative thing and all this positive, but I keep thinking about that. Just like Elijah, right? I mean, Jezebel trying to kill you is kind of a big deal, but it's not as big as fire from heaven, right? I mean, comparatively, it's like no big deal. I just called fire from heaven. I'll call fire from heaven for Jezebel too. Bring it on. He doesn't do that, though. He focuses on the negative. He runs. He says, I'd rather die. At Great Oaks, we're growing like crazy. God is doing amazing things here. But still, people get mad. They, get, they yell. They bail. Marriages struggle. Truth is rejected. People I love and care about as a shepherd are hurt. I'm like you. I want to be batting a 1,000. But it's just not possible. And it can be so discouraging. I see people putting ridiculous things like jobs and sports and trinkets above the God of the universe. I work hard on a message, but the weather's a little bit cruddy, so you guys stay home. I'm like, really? (laughs) There's discouragement. It happens to all of us. Even with all the massive positive things happening, as a pastor, I, like you, live with constant discouragement. You say, why are you telling us this? Because I just want to be on an even playing field so we can all be depressed together, all right? (laughs) Let's just be depressed together, okay? It's better than alone. No, I don't want to whine, but I just want to tell you we all live there. I I don't let it own me. I'm not depressed. Like, I don't... I don't let it run my life, but it's there. We all live there at least at some point in our life. I'm included in this. I'm no different. So the question for you and for me is, will we trust God who doesn't change? 
all the time or only in good times? Will we trust God who doesn't change all the time or only in good times? Because a faith that is only strong on the mountaintops is no faith at all. Hear me. A faith that is only strong on the mountaintops of life is really no faith at all. Will we have a faith that perseveres? That's the question. Because that's what we're talking about today, perseverance. Elijah had game-changing perseverance. God allowed Aaron and I to persevere in China, and we saw him do great things there as we ministered in his name. And we've seen great things happen in ministry since we were called back to the States. Perseverance. It means that you keep going no matter what. It doesn't mean you never struggle. In fact, inherent in the idea or the concept of perseverance is struggle, right? You don't need to persevere if there's no struggle. You tracking with me? There's always struggle. If perseverance is involved, then that means you're working hard to get through something. It doesn't mean you never, never struggle. It doesn't mean you never doubt. It means that in the end, you take the next step and you plod forward and you keep moving. No matter what happens in your life, you keep moving forward. You persevere. You move on. You go on. It means that you trust God no matter how low the valleys or how long they last. Elijah struggled. He was depressed, lonely. He wanted to die. But God said, keep going. I got stuff for you to do. Persevere. And Elijah did. He obeyed the Lord, and he got out of that cave. Everybody say, I'm getting out of that cave. Come on, let's say it again. I'm getting out of that cave. Because we're not going to stay discouraged, right? We're not going to stay in the cave of depression, in the cave of self-centeredness, in the cave of woe is me. We're saying, I'm getting out of that cave. Say it with me. I'm getting out of that cave. Some of you are in the cave. You're stuck. It's okay. Maybe another time you'll get out. Elijah got out of that cave. And he started to do what God wanted him to do. He anointed Elisha, prophet after him, who did much more than Elijah ever did as far as miracles go. There are more valleys in Elijah's story, more tests, but Elijah perseveres in the end. And Elijah's end is interesting. Elijah is one of two people in the Old Testament who doesn't ever really die. Elijah is taken to heaven by chariots of fire from heaven. It's a crazy scene. You can check it out in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. Read the rest of Elijah's story this week. He had this game-changing perseverance. Let me read you a passage about perseverance real quick. Out of the book of James. It'll be on the screen. Verse 2. The ESV uses the word steadfastness. It's the same as perseverance. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The valleys of life 
are where your faith is tested and perseverance is developed. And please hear this, beloved. Following Christ is less about how you begin and more about how you persevere. Sometimes we put all the thought on the beginning, right? I raised my hand, I went up and got prayer, I did this beginning, I started strong, or sometimes when we do start and we're running as fast as we can, but then we hit a wall, or we slow down, or we tire out, or we hit a trial, or we become discouraged, we go, oh, it's going so good the last six minutes. And we're like, ah, it's all over now. I can't possibly do this Jesus thing. Because I didn't start out strong. I'm not like that guy over there. What you don't know is that that guy over there, if his faith is genuine, he didn't start strong either. Right? I mean, he hit brick walls, and he figured out a way around them. He went backwards, then he went forwards. He had valleys, deep valleys that you know nothing about. Following Christ is less about how you begin and more about how you persevere. It's about perseverance. It's about running the race daily and finishing well. A fast start is good, but only if it doesn't get cut off when things go bad. You know what's a thousand times better than a strong start? A strong finish. Persevere. But if you're in a valley right now, let me just encourage you for a moment. God, God came to Elijah in a whisper. Not as a strong wind or an earthquake or a raging fire, a whisper. He was gentle and he was compassionate. Listen, if you're in a valley today, hear these words. God has not changed. He has not abandoned you. He has not bailed on you. He loves you. And he is your rock, will be your rock your strong tower, your fortress, your source of strength and hope and joy, your answer, if you'll lean into him in this valley and not rebel against him. Here's the truth you have to understand. When you get to a valley, when you get to the other side, you will not get through the valley the same. We don't go through trials and come out at the other side the same. Tracking with me? We are either closer to God or farther away from him. We don't come back the same. Lots of times we rail against him in the valley and we end up on the other side needing to repent or just running far away from not even thinking about God. But other times when we're careful to lean into God, we come out on the other side of a valley closer to him, stronger than we've ever been, right? How many of you have experienced that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So lean into him. He has not changed. This too will pass. And another thing, one of the main reasons God has us in a community of faith, a family like this one, is so that we can get help and encouragement in those valleys. We can get prayer. So don't do this alone. Don't do this valley alone. Reach out. Ask for prayer. Lean on your family. That's that's what we're supposed to be doing. Do you want to be a game changer for your family? 
your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends, your community, your church? What's stopping you? Maybe, maybe you're letting the changing tide of your circumstances determine your faith instead of the unchanging God above them. Maybe you need to pray for perseverance. Faith that doesn't just begin well, but perseveres well, finishes well. That's Elijah. Next week is King Josiah. A king at the age of eight. Think about what you were doing at eight. It wasn't being a king. Read up on him in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 this week before next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that is so true. I guess today I'm thankful, God, that though we go through discouragement and that is guaranteed, another guarantee is that you are with us throughout it. That in the valley, you are there. That on the mountaintop, you are there. That on the other side of this, you're there. That you never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you for that truth. That trials are a guarantee, but so is your presence. So is your love. So is your strength. So Lord, I pray for those in this room right now who are going through discouragement. I pray, I guess, for two things. One, that you would remind them of all that you've done in your life, in their life, and that you never leave them, that that truth would go deep into their hearts. And the other thing I would ask is that you would give them the boldness and the the faith, the vulnerability, the trust to reach out to somebody, somebody next to them, sitting next to them, a family member, a friend, a prayer worker on the side of the, the room today. I just pray that in this time of discouragement, they would refuse to go it alone. They would reach out, tell somebody what they're going through, get prayer, and be encouraged. We love you, Jesus. As always, we pray for those in this room that have never given their life over to you. Let them not leave here without making that decision. Let them not leave here without encountering the God of Elijah. Let them not leave here without forsaking whatever they're counting on, whatever they're putting their hope in, and instead turning to you and putting their hope completely and totally in you today. We love you, Jesus. We give all this to you, and we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for you today. May you quit letting the valleys of life derail your faith in God. May you find a faith like Elijah's that perseveres. And may you become the game changer God wants you to become. Make sure you get to a life group this week and talk this over. If you're not in one, stop at Connection Central, get signed up, go to a life group. Our church is a church of life groups, not a church with life groups. It's the life blood of our church. And so I ask that you would get involved in that, discuss uh, today's sermon. But also, just like you were helped today 
to take your next step towards God as we talk through perseverance. Don't let it stop with you. Don't leave here and not take that to someone else. Open the Bible with somebody, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker. Open the Bible and talk about Elijah and talk about James 1 and talk about perseverance. Don't let it stop with you. Be a Jesus follower who makes and disciples other Jesus followers. Are you with me? Listen to this song. Stay standing as they play and sing. And if you know it, sing along. Otherwise, let the words minister to you today before you leave.